Ellen is not able to be with us this morning. I ask that you be praying for her, um, but we will move on with our services. So if you would, turn to 2 Peter. We uh, finished up 1 Peter last week, and we are moving on to this second letter that Paul has written to the churches, largely in Turkey. It's interesting, 1 Peter uh, really is probably one of the most widely read of the letters in the New Testament, and then we turn around to 2 Peter, which is probably one of the most unknown and most ignored letters. But they are written uh, to similar folks, they're written to the similar churches that he wrote uh, in 1 Peter. He's also writing to those same churches in 2 Peter, but he's looking at two different things. He's still looking at the attack on the church, but in the first letter of Peter, he's looking at an outward attack. In the second letter that Peter writes, he's looking for an inward attack, and we'll get into that more. But it's interesting books, and they dovetail, interesting letters, really, I should say, and they dovetail well together to remind us of how do we face all of this, how do we come to all of this, in a manner of holiness and, and holding on to that which is real and holding on to that which all the great promises that God has given us. Um, and so we're going to look at that together over the next uh, four, four weeks or so uh, as we study this wonderful, wonderful letter of Second Peter. Hopefully by now, I know I haven't given you a ton of time, but hopefully by now you've been able to find Second Peter. We're going to start in chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. So if you would stand that we may honor the reading of God's word this morning, then we will do that together. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up in the way, by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to at, at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you spoke by your spirit through Peter 
so that we may have your word in written form. We thank you as well for the heart that you put in Peter. Lord, the heart of a pastor, the heart of a brotherly companion who desires that his friends, who desires that those that are under his care would know that their salvation is real. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would give great grace and great encouragement to the heart that may be doubting their salvation, but it is real. Lord, that you would strengthen and show them that, that you would help them to to deepen their trust in the work that you have done on their behalf. Father, I pray at the same time, Lord, for the one that is sitting here this morning that is holding on to something that is counterfeit, that they have put their trust in something that's not real. Father, that you would, Lord, allow their eyes to see. Lord, that you would help them to understand, Lord, that they are not going the direction that they thought at all. Lord, that you would awaken us all, Lord, to the things, Lord, that you would have accomplished through us by the way of your word. Father, thank you that you save. We pray this in the beautiful name and the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Just want to start our look at Second Peter with a quick introduction and not going to spend a ton of time here as we've did quite a bit of introduction with First Peter. But as you look at Second Peter, you need to know a couple of things. They're going, to, they're going to inform you as you move through this letter. First, you need to understand that this was written from prison. More than likely, this was written from prison and, and more than likely, it was written by Peter right before his execution, right before his martyrdom. And if you compare this book to that of 2 Timothy, where Peter, or sorry, Paul is also in prison and Paul is also awaiting execution, you're going to see a lot of similarities in the emotions that these two men are going through as they know what lies before them and the the love that they want to make sure that they impart to to brothers and sisters who have cared for them and are praying for them. And and so I would encourage you to to sometime maybe maybe do a comparison of 2 Timothy and 2 Peter. Um, it, it's, it's helpful to understand. But it's also helpful for us to understand as we see some of the emotion that comes through in this book about what Peter was going through. It's also interesting as you think about the fact that First Peter was written for how do we handle persecution with holiness. And now in Second Peter, Peter is writing in persecution. Another thing that we need to realize and you need to be aware of as you go through this book is the word knowledge. You're going to see the word knowledge occur over and over and over again as you read this text. But we need to be careful that as we read the word knowledge that we don't think about it in the way that we think, often think about it in our Western minds. We think about knowledge and we think of just academics. We think about book knowledge that can be absorbed into our minds. But the knowledge that Peter speaks of here is more than just head knowledge. The knowledge that Peter speaks of here, especially when he talks about the knowledge of Jesus Christ, is a relational knowledge. It's not just knowing who Jesus is, or as we might say, yeah, I've heard that name before, or oh yeah, I've heard of him, or I know of him. It's how you would know a family member. It's how you would know a loved one. It's it's something that goes beyond just a a head knowledge, but you know their emotions. You can sometimes even predict what they're going to do before they do it, or or finish sentences. It's that kind of, of close knowledge that Peter speaks of throughout this text when he says things like 
May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Jesus and of Jesus our Lord. He's not speaking there of a grace and peace that comes just through a head knowledge. He's speaking of it through a heart. It reminds us very closely of what James says in his text. You say you know Christ. Congratulations, the demons know Christ, but they are not saved because they don't know him. They don't have knowledge of him in a relational sense. And so you need to be aware of that. And I'll, I'll try as we go through the next few weeks to point some of those out to you. But just as you read through the passage, as you read through the letter, remind yourself of what that knowledge is. It's not a head knowledge, it's a relational knowledge. Lastly, one thing that we need to be aware of is that this is a different attack from Satan. It's a different attack from Satan than what we see in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, Satan is a lion. And he is on the outside of the church prowling around, waiting and looking for someone that he can devour. The attack on the church is outward in so that there is persecution and there is suffering. And Peter is reminding, he's, he's helping the church to understand how do we respond to this. In 2 Peter we have a completely different attack. Now, no longer is Satan pictured as a lion, but now he is pictured as a snake who comes with his lies. He is like the snake in Genesis who creeps into the garden and comes up to Eve and says, did God really say that? Do you think you're really going to die? Now, the father of all lies has come into the church through false teachers and he's saying, do you think Christ is really going to return? He hasn't so far. That life goes on the way that it always is going on. Surely he's not really coming back. Do you think it really matters how you live your life? Surely if Christ is not coming back, we can live however we want to live. Satan is no longer on, he's not only on the outside trying to attack in, but in this letter, Peter reminds us and is very forceful in his language that the enemy is on the inside and we need to be wary of his lies and we need to respond correctly to them. And he comes down very, very harshly in chapters 2 and chapter 3 as we're going to see. He, he lays it down about these false teachers who are talking the lies of Satan. And so it's a different response. And so that's what he is preparing for. As I said, in chapters 2 and chapter 3, Peter is going to begin to unfold the argument that against these false teachers and against the lies that they are telling. But in chapter 1, he's going to talk about what's real. He's going to give the basis for the response. And what should be no surprise to anyone who went through 1 Peter, his basis for the response is the gospel. We talked about in, in the first letter that he writes that if, you know, it's kind of like some pastors that people talk about and they're like, man, all he talks about is Jesus. Oh, all he talks about is the gospel. Like, I hate going to the sermon because I know I'm just going to hear about Jesus the whole time. Well, if you have a problem with those kinds of pastors, you have a real problem with Peter because over and over again, Peter goes back to Jesus. He goes back to the gospel. He goes back to the promises that we stand on so that we may resist the attacks that are going on around us so we may know how to live rightly. So it's no surprise to us that we come to First chapter, the first chapter of 2 Peter, where he's beginning the argument against these false teachers, and his response is, remember the gospel. So he says there, there's a line in there that's for the next slide, it says that we are partakers of divine nature. We need to understand chapters, verses 1 through 4 
in this passage very carefully because if we don't, it's going to be real tempting for us to twist verses 5 through 11. But he begins here in the first few verses talking about how we are partakers of the divine nature and talking about our salvation. And he answers three questions. He answers three questions in these first few verses. And we're going to look at these really quickly. First, he answers the question, how are we saved? He answers the question, how are we saved? Look there in verse 1, it says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter Peter's starting off with, let's talk about how we were saved. Because if we don't understand that, then it's going to maybe be real easy for us to misunderstand what he's going to say here in a moment. But he says, first, we are saved by the righteousness of Christ. When I was in college, I had a class with a guy named uh, Dr. Tom Hufty. Some of you may have heard of, of Dr. Hufty. He's a, a great guy. He was at HLG for a number of years, uh, did a lot of interim pastoring. He may have even been here at one point or another. I don't know. But Tom was, Tom was a great guy, and I love Dr. Hufty. Um, but we were in class one day, and he looked at us, and he said, you're going to have a test next Friday. And we're like, okay, what's the twist? Because there was always a twist to test with him. And he said, here's the deal. Your grade is going to count for somebody else, and somebody else's grade is going to count for yours. And you just heard the whole class, like, groan, like, at one time. And he said, so, for example, Brian, your test, your grade is going to count for Justin's. And Justin, your grade is going to count for Brian's. And we both looked at each other, and it was, like, mutual, ugh. Part of the reason for that was Justin was going through great excitement and great fear, because Justin was a longtime friend of mine, and, and Lord bless him, he was not the best student. And so Justin was oftentimes getting grades that were less than desirable. And so Justin's looking at me with great, great happiness because I, by the Lord's blessing somehow, was a good student and was used to getting good grades. And so he was like, great, my test is going to be an A. But now I have a great fear of Brian because... He is not going to be happy with the grade that I give him. And I'm on the other end going, great, I'm going to put in all this work, and Justin's going to get my grade, and I'm going to receive his. It was not the happiest of moments of my life. But Hufty went on to explain after we took the test. He said, this is, this is the act of Christ. See, Christ wrapped himself in flesh, and he took a test that all of us take. He was tempted the way we were tempted. He went through the same emotions that we went through. He lived life in a human, but he passed the test. He got an A. He got 100%. And this is one of those tests that's pass or fail. You either get 100% or you get a zero. And he passed it with flying colors. We all fail. Yet his grade is put on our account. When God, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when the God, the judge of all, when he looks at our grade report, as he does not see our F, but rather if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he sees Jesus A. And he says, come on in. It is not an act that we did. It is an act that Christ did. So our salvation is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not by anything we did, but by what he did. Not only that, 
But we see in verse 3 that it was his divine power that has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, remember, the heart knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So once again, this salvation, how are we saved? We're saved through the righteousness of Christ, through his power, by his calling. The faith that we have, that we put in faith, that we put in Jesus Christ for our salvation comes through him. So when we ask the question, how are we saved? We only respond by the blood of Christ. By my faith in him. By his grace. So how are we saved? By him alone. But he goes on to answer the question, what are we saved to? Look at verse 4. He says, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of divine nature. Not only was he the one that saved us, but he saved us to some grand things. We get to first, he, he spells it out there, he, first we get to be partakers of the divine nature. We get to be like him in some ways. We get to experience being a son or a daughter of the God, of the creator. We're adopted into the family and all that that means. Now that doesn't mean we become God. I want to be clear that. This is not teaching that, that after we die that somehow we can earn Godship. This is not a Mormon teaching. This is not a Latter-day Saints. We would declare that heresy. We see that nowhere in Scripture. But it's saying that he makes us look like him. We're not losing our humanness, but we get to partake in being part of the family of God. Not only that, not only that, but we get these great promises. We get these great promises of God where he extends to us grace and says, you're going to get the chance to spend all of eternity in a place with no more grief and no more sorrow and no more brokenness. So he saves us into the family of God, into, into all of eternity. But not only that, he saved us from something. He saved us from something. Here in the end of verse 4, it says that we have become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of our sinful desires. So God saves us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ towards these great incredible promises that he's given us and away from the corruption of the world. By all accounts, you and I deserve judgment. By all accounts, you and I have earned separation from God. By all accounts, you and I have earned hell. We have been corrupted by this world and about by our own sinful desires. But when Christ died for you and when we placed our faith and trust in him, that is no longer what we look forward to. That's no longer what is part of us. We are a new creation saved to something else. That's pretty cool. Peter is reminding us here in, this, in these first few verses of all the great things that God has been, done for us. Mark Dever, in his dealing with this passage, uh, he asked a couple of questions, rhetorical questions. And I'm going to paraphrase just a little bit, but he asked, what does God have to do to get you to rejoice? As you look at the great promises that he's given you, as you look at how he has saved you, as you look at what he has saved you to, as, he look, as you look at what he saved you from, what does he have to do to get you to rejoice? Further, what does he have to do 
What does he further have to accomplish to deserve your affection? What does he further have to accomplish? What does he further have to do to earn your affection? Obviously, the answer should be nothing. The answer should be, he did it all on the cross. He did it all in creating me. He did it all in saving me. My affection comes from his affection for me. And that affection responds in obedience. That affection responds in worship. That affection responds in in a desire to know him. He has nothing left to prove to me. Christ has nothing left to do for me. He's already done it. So Peter builds upon this foundation. He says, look at all what God has done for you. Look at how he saved you. And that's going to be the foundation for the argument in chapter 2 when he says, these false teachers that are coming in and telling you a different gospel and telling you there is a better way and telling you that you can live a better life now, that's right, I used it, okay? They are lying because God has already given it all to you. What more does he have to do? The answer is nothing. Stop listening to these people. He says all of that, though. He says all of that, and he says, so how do we know that that's happened? He uses the rest of our passage today to say, how do we know that's happened? How do we know that he has saved us? How do we know that we can be assured of what he saved us to? And so he begins to take, he says, you've been saved into the divine nature. Let's look at the parts of the divine nature. And he gives us a list there. It's a fairly lengthy list. He says there, we talk, he talks about faith and virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. He gives this long list, and it's connected to other lists like it. If you look in Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 23, Paul gives a list somewhat similar to this, where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The idea here being that If Christ has saved you, if he has created in you a new nature, if you truly are a part of the divine nature, as Peter says, then these things should be evident in you. But we are not perfect in them, obviously. They are an ongoing work. They're an ongoing work. I don't know anyone here that would say that when they look at this list, I am perfect in self-control. I have made it. I have arrived. I can look at a Snickers and say, no, be gone. Okay? Or I can look at, at something on TV and say, oh, I need that. And every time I, I, I resist or when I feel anger, I always withhold my tongue. That's me, right, by the way. Like every time I'm angry, man, my tongue just shuts down. I'd never say anything. You should be throwing things at me right now. Okay? We're, we never have all of self-control. Okay? But Peter is not saying that all of these things need to be perfect in your life. He says all of them need to be evident and you need to be growing in them. You need to be growing in them. You should be able to look at your life and say, you know, I'm not perfect in brotherly affection, but it's growing in me. It's it's coming along. He says in verse 8 there that, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. He's saying, you know, they're they're there and they're increasing. They're not there yet. You're not not ripe yet. You never get there. We're not going to get to that point of fulfillment of all these things until we reach glorification in heaven. 
where God gives us a new body and we're, we're not corrupted by sin anymore. We're always going to struggle with these things. That being said, are these evident? Because if they are not, there's an issue. I love that verse 8 that we just read, by the way. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe there are two ways that fruit is viewed in the New Testament. You have one that, that Jesus predominantly uses in the Gospels, and then you have one that's predominantly used in the letters. And they're both good uh, metaphors, so to speak, or, or good examples of, of fruit and, and what should be produced. The one that we see predominantly in the letters is the fruit of the Spirit, love, patience, all those, okay? The, the list that we just read as, as an example. All of these things that are part of the divine nature that we should be growing into, okay? And if we don't see those, then there's a problem. We need to question our salvation. The, one, the way that Jesus uses the example of fruit, though, is in fruit of other people. That though we don't save people, we don't have the power to save. We, by God's grace, are used as tools in his hand to lead others to salvation. We are the mouthpiece of God that gets to deliver the gospel so that people may believe in it. And Jesus, throughout the New Testament, throughout the gospel says, if you're not producing fruit like that, if you're not leading others to me, then there's something wrong. Now, we don't lead, we're not all Billy Graham, right? Like, we're not all going to lead thousands. He says some of you are going to lead just a few people, but it's still fruit. Some of you are going to lead bushels and bushels of people. It doesn't matter how much, it just matters that it's happening. I believe that this verse is the connection point between those two examples. He says, be all the more diligent to make your calling, and or sorry, verse, I'm reading verse 10, verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in knowledge of our Lord. I believe what Peter is saying is, if this fruit is in your life, it's going to impact others around you. It's going to impact others around you. It's going to make a difference in their lives. When they see your brotherly affection, when they see your self-control, when they see your faith, when they see your virtue, it's going to have an impact in the, on them. And they're going to want to know why. Let's give you an example. What does Jesus say in the New Testament? How will they know us? By our love. He says, by your love for one another, they will know that you are mine. So the fruit of love is produced out of a divine nature that the Spirit puts in us. We are saved. The Spirit is put in us. The new nature in us produces this thing called love that the world doesn't understand. It doesn't understand how a group of people can gather together when they're different, when they're different socially, when they're different um, in, in terms of relationships, and, and how they can love one another and come together and worship. That, that makes no sense. And so this fruit of love is produced in our lives through the Spirit, but then it produces fruit in other people. As other people look at us and go, I want that. How do I get that? And we point them to Christ and say, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Peter is saying here, so that you're not ineffective in your witness, these things should be happening. So that you produce fruit, so that you can lead other people to Christ and the knowledge of Christ, not just a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge, these things lead to that. These things should be present. They should have an impact on those around us. What does he say, though, about the absence of this fruit? 
doesn't just talk about, he talks about how we are saved. He, he talks about that we, do, we join the divine nature, that we partake in the divine nature. He talks about how, what the divine nature looks like, but then he goes the next step and he says, what if it's not there? What if you look at your life and the divine nature, the, these fruit, is not there? Now, before we enter in this, I, I want to give a couple of words of caution. First word of caution is, let us remember what saves us. Remember verses 1 through 4 as we go through this. Because if we don't, it's going to be very tempting for us to think that we can earn salvation. That if I just try harder at love, if I just try harder at brotherly affection, if I just try harder in virtue, that I'm going to make it to heaven. That's not what Peter's teaching. Go back to verse 1 and 4. Salvation, justification happens by the righteousness and the power of Christ alone. So remember that in your mind as we go through this. The second thing I want to, to give a word of caution is this word is not written primarily to those Christians who are struggling with their faith. There are those of you who look at the real thing. You have really trusted in faith in Jesus Christ. He has really saved you. And yet, for whatever reason, you look at what's real and you're like, oh, there's a tear in it. Oh, oh maybe this is damaged now. Maybe, maybe it's not worth anything. Maybe I, I need to tape it. Or, oh, man, it's gotten dirty. Like, I need to, I need to wash this to make it better. And, and you're constantly like trying to, you've been given the real thing, but you're trying to make it better. And, and my word to you today, brother and sister, is it's already perfect. Your salvation is already perfect. If he has saved you, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, know that it, you can act upon it. You're still going to sin. John tells us that in 1 John. You're still going to sin. You're still going to make mistakes. Repent of it. It doesn't change the reality of your salvation. So don't be, don't be dismayed by this passage. Don't be dismayed by this passage. Be real with it. Look for the fruit, but don't be dismayed by it. Be encouraged. Your salvation is real, and nothing that you do can make it better. I can't make this worth a million dollars by writing on it. I can't make it better than what it is. It's, it's perfect as it is. And I know this because I doubt. I, I spent a good deal of my adult life struggling with my salvation. And at the end of the day, I had a great mentor who came to me and said, stop calling Christ a liar. He saved you. He said he would. Trust it. So it's not for you. Though, though I, you need to struggle, you need to look at this thing. It's, it's not predominantly you. Don't be dismayed. The person that this was written to, the person that this was written to was the, the individual who is wrongly confident in a counterfeit. This passage is written to the one who is wrongly confident in a counterfeit. This is the greatest fear of your pastor. The greatest knowledge of a pastor. Is that there are some that sit in our midst and they look good but they have never truly given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ they have believed in a counterfeit maybe it was an emotional experience as a child maybe it was in an emo as emotional experience as an adult maybe it was done out of wrong motive maybe it was maybe you were just looking for fire insurance but you never made him lord of your life Maybe you've bought into the lie of Satan that 
when you're saved, you can go and live your life however you want, and you have no desire for the Lord, you have no desire for the church, you have no desire for the Word of God. You may, you may come, you may, you may say amen at the right time, but you don't have a desire for it to learn it. There's nothing in your life that's, that says, yes, it was real. But you're holding on to this counterfeit, thinking this will get me in. You're holding on to a million-dollar bill, thinking that that will pay the entrance fee when it's a counterfeit, when it's a fake. I wish, I wish my sister could get up and give her testimony this morning for this passage. She, she was dunked, made wet as a child, and she would tell you that. They called it a baptism, but it wasn't. She was wet, and she lived her life with a counterfeit. And then when she was 21, she came before the church and she, she confessed. I did that out of an emotional response because I thought that's what people wanted of me. I did it because I thought that's what other people wanted me to do. I did it because my friend had just gotten baptized and I wanted to be like her. I wanted to be in front of everybody else and get wet and have people love on me and hug on me. I didn't do it because I was convicted of my sin. I didn't do it because I wanted Jesus to save me. I didn't do it because I wanted him to be Lord of my life and I've been living with a counterfeit this whole time. And she stood before the church and she said, but now it's real. Praise the Lord. I wish she could be here to give you that testimony herself. She tells it much better than I do. She knows it much better than I do. That is the heart of Peter as, as the Spirit leads him to write this passage. He says there if, for, uh, in verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. He is blind you don't have the fruit in your life if you don't have these things in your life Peter says you are blind you are chasing after other things and we see throughout scripture blindness is connected with lostness you can't see you are so caught up in the things of the world you're so caught up in the pretty things you're so caught up in the things that satisfy you right here and right now that you have no concept of the things of eternity you can't see the things that are way out there. You don't understand them. He says that we're forgetful. There in verse 9 and continuing to read, it says, having forgotten that he was cleansed by his former sins. Now there's two ways to interpret this passage. Um, the first way that this is commonly interpreted is to say that Christians forget, have forgotten. Okay, That if you don't have these things in your life, that you can be saved and, and just have forgotten them. And, and I think there's some truth to that. Certainly, I believe that, that we as Christians forget our salvation. You know how I know that? Because we don't talk about it. If we remembered our salvation all the time, we would be talking about it. Because it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. And we like telling stories. We like telling people about good things that happened to us. So I believe that can happen. But I think when you look in the context of this passage, what you see is him saying, you don't have this fruit, so you're not a partaker of the divine nature. So therefore, you're lost. Then he says, you're nearsighted to blindness. We only see blindness connected to lostness. So what I think it's really talking about is those who have been in the church who have forgotten that Christ offers the cleansing, that they've for forgotten what he, has, what he has done and the offer that's been extended to them. And instead, they have chased after a counterfeit. They have gone a wrong way. They know the truth, they've heard the truth, but they've chased after something else. And so they have forgotten the reality. They've forgotten what the real thing looks like. 
And he says, for both of these folks, for the blind and for those who have forgotten, they are in danger. He says in verse 10, therefore, brothers, make all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. If you don't have the fruit in your life, if you don't see this in your life, if you don't see the desire for Christ, if you don't see a desire for the church, if you don't see a desire for his word, if you don't see the fruit of the spirit in your life and growing in your life, then you are in danger. And this is not just Peter that says this. Look at the warning of James. He says, you want to show me your faith? I'll show you my works, and then I'll show you my faith. He says, that not that works earn us anything, but that there are evidences of what is real in our life. And if you don't have them in your life, then there's something to be concerned about. Paul says, struggle with your salvation. Make sure it's real. Make sure you haven't held on to a counterfeit. Make sure that you have the fruit of the Spirit. We see it in 1 John as he says, I write these things to you that you may know you are saved. And then he talks about the love of the church. He talks about the love of Christ being in our lives. And if they are not in our lives, then we have taken a counterfeit. We have believed a lie. Brothers and sisters, I believe with all my heart that there are some that are here that have held on to a counterfeit and you are in danger. You're holding on to something that is fake. Be careful. So Peter calls us to make sure. He says, you're in danger. Make sure of your salvation. Three questions. Do you have fruit? Do you have fruit? If you got alone in a room with just yourself and the Lord, and he asked you, is it there? He went through this list and through the word of God through 1 John. and Would you be able to say, yes, it's there? Is it perfect? No. It's not perfect. We struggle with self-control. We struggle with brotherly affection. We struggle struggle with virtue. But it's there and it's growing. Or would you say no? No, I, I don't think it is. Do you have the desire? Really connecting more with 1 John. John calls to us and says, Do you love Christ? You have a desire for him. He's done everything. What we talked about, he has already earned your affection. He's already, he's already done whatever he needs to do. Do you, do you have a desire for him? Then he says, do you have a desire for the church? Do you love the church? Do you love brothers and sisters in Christ? Not that we always get along, not that we always aren't sometimes annoyed, but do you have a general love, a general affection for the church? You have a desire for the word. This is really what we're going to get into next week. Do you have a desire for the word? Is this your food? Is this your water that sustains you? Is this your guidebook? Or do you just live however you want? The Lord wants to be involved in your life, and this is the way that he's chosen to do it. Do you have a desire? Which leads to the last question, is it real? Is what you have real? As you really look over your life and you look at your salvation, is it based on something that you can hold on to and say, yes, I see the Lord at work. I know what he's done in my life and I can rejoice. If the answer to those questions is I don't know or no, then friend, Christ offers you grace. He offers you salvation. He offers the knowledge of salvation.
of assurance of the promises that he gives. Peter ends our passage this morning talking about the heart of a pastor and his heart for these people. He says, look, my, my life is slipping away. I'm, I'm about ready to be done. But I want you to know. I want you to know these things. I want you to know your salvation. I want you to know it really and not a counterfeit. And so I'm, I'm writing these things to you so that even after I'm gone that you will know them, that you will be able to look for them, that you'll have knowledge, not knowledge, knowledge of him. That's my prayer for you too. My prayer for you is that you would have knowledge of him and not hold on to a counterfeit. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're just going to have a time of response. Some of you here this morning just need encouragement. The Lord has saved you and you can trust in it and you can rejoice in it. And this morning you need to to jump out of your seat and praise the Lord for all that he has done. Just a reminder of the divine divine nature that we partake in. a, A reminder of his promises. Some of you this morning, you listen to this and you, you know, I don't know about the fruit. I don't know about that desire. And you're sitting there maybe this morning, and maybe this morning you just need to come before the Lord in your, in your chair and just say, Lord, help me to know the truth about who I am. Don't let my heart deceive me. Help me to know the truth about who I am. The truth about, about my salvation. Some of you know the answer to that question. You need You need to accept him. You need to put your faith and trust in him. You need to make him the Lord and say, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do because you bought me with your blood. Then we would invite you this morning to to ask him to pray that to him. Maybe some of you need to come and say, "I, I need to be baptized. I need to make it real. And we would invite you to do that this morning. And, and some of you may be sitting there going, man, there's people in this church. I've been in this church so long. Like, people held me as a baby that were in this church. And they think that I'm a believer. And what are they going to do when I come forward and I say, no, I've been a counterfeit this whole time. But now I want real. What are they going to think? What are they going to say? Well, number one, don't worry about them. But number two, I can tell you as a promise that they will be excited. They will be thrilled. I saw the response to my sister. I know the fear that she had of going forward about what are people going to think about me being a fake this whole time. That was what she was telling herself. That's what the enemy was telling her. But she went forward and like the whole place broke down in tears of joy and they were excited and there was cheering. Brother, sister, let me assure you. Friend, let me assure you. If that is you today, don't worry about what others are going to think. Worry about what your Savior thinks and know that your brothers and sisters are going to rejoice. We're going to rejoice. This morning you respond as the Lord would have you. Let me pray.